Please turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 as we continue our series in all the fields and get ready for probably one of the best sermons you'll ever hear. Preaching on pride. The first service, Scott, that was a joke. You guys need to understand that was a joke just to make sure we're all on the same page. But listen to these quotes that weren't a joke. It's called talent. I just have it. I can't explain it. You either have it or you don't. Barry Bonds said that after crushing some records before it was proven he was using drugs to help his talent. Or here's a quote from the entertainer formerly known as Kanye West. I'm God's vessel, but my greatest pain in life is that I'll never be able to see myself perform. Solid. Here's another one. You have to be a little arrogant to go out there in that moment and make plays you need to make, said the still not Super Bowl champion Joe Burrow. <laughs> Contrast those tidbits of worldly wisdom on the emotion of pride and its benefits with the biblically informed view of pride. The great preacher Chuck Swindoll said, the world's smallest package is a man wrapped up in himself. Try this one. Those who think too much of themselves don't think enough. Said the missionary who founded orphanages in India for 50 years, Amy Carmichael. Or how about the Puritan Stephen Charnock? What are we dealing with when we're dealing with pride? He says pride is self contending with God for preeminence. Well, hopefully you can see the chasm between worldly wisdom on pride and biblically informed understanding of pride to the world, pride is essential for success. To the Christian, the opposite is true. Imagine even God designed our salvation in a way to help us see the terror of pride. Because pride destroys, pride steals, pride takes. All the things the world promises pride will do are the opposite of what it actually does. Consider what Paul means in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, when he talks to us about how we were saved and why we were saved that way. He's condemned all of us under sin, and he's shown our Father outside of Christ to be Satan, uh, but God, rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, through faith in Christ, God saved us. But why? Paul answers that question for us. Paul answers the question, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, why did God save us the way he did? For by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? What's the purpose, Paul? Paul tells us, so that no one may boast. You see, salvation is described carefully and clearly, and then the purpose is announced by God. Why did God save us in this way? So that nobody will boast. Salvation is a gift by grace through faith in Christ and his work and not yours so that you won't boast. So you won't be proud. We know how freeing it is to be saved by grace, all the work of God. But if you want the freeing work of grace through the gift of faith, you must receive also the humility that comes with it. You didn't save yourself, so you can't be proud of your salvation. And when you're not proud of your salvation, you won't live in pride in your salvation. But you, I'm guessing just like me, battle and struggle with pride all the blooming time. You want to find pride? Preach on it. <laughs> Goodness. 
Our pride motivates little barely perceptible sins and it motivates massive assaults against God. In our pride, we talk about ourselves too much. In our pride, we seek perfectionism in ourselves and others. In our pride, we refuse to be gracious. In our pride, we reject forgiveness. In our pride, we fail to be thankful. In our pride, we see ourselves as superior over others. In our pride, we see ourselves as the object of everybody's pity. In our pride, we shift the blame off ourselves to circumstances or other people. In our pride, we hold the sins of others over them. In our pride, we excuse our constant failings and limitations. In our pride, we reject the God-given authorities over us. In our pride, we seek to make ourselves the hero of the situation instead of God. In our pride, we rage in anger, whether out loud for all the world to hear and see or under our breath or even just in our hearts. Pride. hope you see how applicable a right response to pride can be in our life. In truth, there's no man who ever lived who didn't find himself dominated by pride at one time or another. But there was the God-man who lived in perfect humility. So stand with me and be reminded from Philippians chapter 2 of what we put on when we put off pride. See with me the perfect display of humility as we begin to study pride. Philippians 2 verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this example that we see in Christ. But I pray that you'll help us as when we rightly understand ourselves, we see this example so far away. We see the beauty of what Christ has done absent in our lives. So help us to see this grace that you gave us to save us is that grace that trains us to grow in humility. Help us this morning to see our pride, to not be oblivious, to not consider our appearances as satisfactory. Help us to see ourselves rightly that we could respond in humility and worship and find grace and the fullness of joy and the life of love for you is better than Anything we could say or pretend about ourselves, help us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.
Well, thank you. You can be seated. As we did last week, we'll use this formula to work ourselves through a better understanding of our pride, also defending ourselves from likely the worldly understanding of pride that has creeped into your mind. So first, we'll look at how the world describes pride. Even in my lifetime, the understanding of pride has taken on new dimensions. It's evolved, so to speak. When I was growing up or in college taking uh, secular courses on psychology, pride was often understood as a way to help uplift and encourage one's self or to view oneself positively. Ordinarily, pride or self-esteem was how you viewed yourself to help yourself. Self-esteem was of utmost importance. There was a, a, morph, a morph in the terminology somewhere around the 2000s from self-esteem to self-worth. And the problem with many therapeutic or psychological views on pride, whether it's labeled self-esteem or self-worth, doesn't matter. It's the reality that truth doesn't reign supreme in those views of pride. How you come to have pride is by teaching yourself that you are what you want to be and not allowing others or society or culture or some sort of abstract or absolute truth to affect your view on yourself. Major distinction between the worldly view of pride and the biblical view of pride is the fact or actual, that actual truth is not necessary to the biblical view of pride. To the world, pride is something to be nurtured, developed, fostered at all costs and protected because pride is a part of your well-being. It's a part of your health both mental and physical. So those outside sources that could be harmful or difficult to maintain your pride with, like toxic relationships or alternative truth models like religions, whatever they are, they're to be avoided or removed. So in order to boost my self-esteem, I don't need the truth. I just need to believe certain things about myself that will help myself and keep people or truth models who challenge those truths away from me away from my positive view of myself. I don't think you need to be a social science expert or an anthropology major to see this model of self-esteem has not worked. And in fact, has led to one of the greatest disasters in mental health our nation has ever seen. So what's the main difference between how the world views pride and how the Bible views pride? Simply, it's truth. <laughs> to believers, the reality of who we are is very important. Because without knowing who we are, we fail to appreciate what God has done. Believers shouldn't be scared of our sin. We shouldn't fear our inadequacy. We don't need to cover it up with positive thinking or say it's good when it's not. Jesus covered our sin. He solved our inadequacy. He saved our soul. We can take all the bad stuff you want to say about us and say, oh yeah, there's more than that. But all of that, this is what Christ has done. He saved us from it. Again, the emotion of pride is not simply an emotional problem. It's a truth problem. And not just a truth problem. It's an epistemology problem. Where does truth come from? Where do we find truth? If truth is found in our hearts or if it's what we say it is, then we rule on the throne and what we say goes. So how does the world often define pride? In a nutshell, it's a good thing that everybody should have, everyone should foster and promote and protect Everything from body positivity to fault-free divorce to gay marriage to pronoun awareness finds its roots sunk deep in the soil of pride. Pride to the world is what we should all pursue in ourselves and demand of others. But how does the Bible define pride? Well, at the outset, we could probably say quite differently. Emotions like depression 
The world in the Bible would agree that they're hard, they're not good for us, they're difficult. But pride, we find ourselves really in a polar opposition to the world's viewpoint on nearly every nuance of pride. So what is pride? Pride is often viewed in the Bible as an overarching quality of those who are at war with God. But for our study, we're going to focus mostly or try to confine our focus on the emotion of pride that's found in believers, not the pride that causes people to reject God. So instead, more the pride that's residual in our hearts as we pursue the Lord, as we seek to look like him, there's that body of death that hangs on to us, Romans 7, 24. That pride is what we'll talk about. Maybe it would be helpful to consider how the Bible communicates the idea of pride. Pride in the Hebrew language, a very poetic and picture-filled language, comes through, uh, brings pride through words uh, that, that have feeling and emotion and, and sight to them. For example, one word for pride simply means to be high. It means something is exalted. Something has climbed up on a pedestal and set itself there. That's a word that we translate pride. There's the classical picture of pride that comes from another Hebrew word group, meaning a stretched neck or a straining neck or a stiff neck. Have you ever taken a family photo with kids that are hitting their growth spurts? Do They're like, you know, I'm taller than my sister, or I'm taller than my brother, or I'm taller than grandma. Well, it's okay for family portraits. It's not a major problem. It's a lie, but it's okay. But in the Old Testament, the consequences of pride are clearly displayed and always disastrous. Pride hardened the heart of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 5, verse 20. Uh, with, with Daniel as his dream interpreting abilities at old Nebi's disposal, he, has, he got a little too big for his britches, and all of a sudden his pride covered everything, and the, the most powerful man and the most powerful empire in all the world up to that point in Daniel's lifetime, he gets sent out to pasture like a cow to graze. Why? Pride. That's what God told him. It's because of his pride. Pride made low the greatest man in the world at that time. Proverbs is an explosion of wisdom and an all-out assault on our every pride. Why? Well, actually, it might surprise you. God assaults our pride because he loves us. Your pride will get you killed. So God will not let you live this life without checking your pride. Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And we often like quote that verse as a kind of funny reminder when people trip, you know. No, no, this is destruction. This is eternal death. That's what a haughty spirit yields. The Old Testament tells us everything we need to know about the terror of pride, but it also gives us a solution. The solution is always found in the work of God in the heart of humility. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, the easy go-to verse. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to what? To walk humbly with your God. Man has fallen under pride. God demands humility. Pride to the Greek mind ordinarily is given to us in the ideas of arrogance and haughtiness. Arrogance is simply an elevated or an exaggerated view of yourself. Haughtiness is arrogance with the addition of disdain for others. The New Testament builds on the Old Testament teaching on pride, reminds us that ultimately the problem with our pride is that God opposes it. And God opposes 
the proud. When you sign on the dotted line of living a life of pride, you are signing up to be at war with God. 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Proud people are opposed by God. But how does pride manifest itself? How does the Bible describe our pride? It's a problem of supreme importance because our pride is ultimately an affront to God. It's against him. Pride is against God. We often view pride as, well, you know, I'm good at stuff, so obviously I'm going to be proud. And we forget that the horizontal plane is not what's concerning, it's the vertical. Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Maybe you say, yo, I am, I'm not saying I'm God. I'm not saying I'm even like as good as God. I'm just saying I'm better than that guy. Friend, God views your haughty heart as an offense against himself. Even if you're offending other people, the offense is against God. Why? Because he knows you. He created you. He formed you. He knows your frame. He knows your frailty. And he offers your every need in himself. He offers the solution to your trouble in himself. And so to pretend that you don't need him is to assume uh, that you can do what he's offered on your own. And it labels God's gift of grace and love and glory as, you know, not that important. Pride against others puts you at war with God. Pride in yourself puts you at war with God, and God opposes the proud. But I'm guessing many of you right now have a person in your mind who needs to hear this. Somebody else. Before we go on, we should ask ourselves if we have pride. And to help you, I'll give you some manifestations of pride, some buckets where we find pride. You're not going to sign up for the first one, but it's there. The first one is hate. It may seem harsh, but pride is a manifestation of hate. Primarily, it's a manifestation of hate against God. Pride is a devastating sin. It's very complex. See, most sins, they turn us away from God. They cause us to run from God or avoid God in some way. But pride, it's an about face right at him. Hey, I got your number, big guy. Pride opposes God. God is opposed to the proud. Pride exalts us above and faces us against God, seeking to dethrone him and enthrone ourselves. Pride is rejection of God. God created the world out of his benevolent love to provide for the world, to show the world that he has everything that the world needs, to be the satisfaction of everything in the world. And pride says, hey, God, you got some good stuff, but I'm all right. I'll pass. It's like the guy selling cut cone knives comes to your house. It's cool. It's interesting. I'll need it. Go ahead. Go on. That's pride. You seek to live without him, independent of him, like pride does. You set yourself against him. You're living in a way that hates him. You can hate God with your 401k. You can hate God with your full pantry. You can hate God with your works-based righteousness. You can hate God with your church attendance. When you seek to achieve what, what God has promised he will only give, how can that be anything other than hate? 
Because what he's offering to give you is not a set of knives. He's offering to give you salvation. It's wrapped in the flesh of his son. And you say, nah, I don't really need that. That's why pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. Don't fail to see it for what it is. It's hatred of God. Second, pride produces hopelessness. Pride produces hopelessness. We should be able to see this. We often don't. Proverbs 26, verse 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 26, 12. The world says pursue pride for a better life. The world says pursue pride. You'll get what you need, what you want. The Bible warns you pride leads to hopelessness. You won't find what you're looking for. If you do, you were looking for the wrong thing. God never gives us a sense that he coddles the proud. Instead, quite the opposite. Jesus' parables, Jesus' life are very evident of that. Psalm 138, verse 6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty, he knows from afar, keeps his distance from them. Our pride separates us from God. It divides us from him, and we often refuse to deal with our pride, and we, we fail to feel the nearness of God, and so then our pride continues to multiply. And Without the nearness of God, we have no reason to be humble, and our pride grows, and God becomes farther and farther from us. And the more hopeless we become, the hopelessness pride produces is a hopelessness in us and for us. But if we are God's, we can be sure that he will bring us back. Hebrews 12 Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Maybe you're like me. You can look back at a few things in your life and think, hmm, that was probably God because I was being proud. God disciplined me because he loved me. Sometimes I look at some of your lives and I see your struggles and I wonder, is that the Lord's discipline? Are they paying attention? Are they listening to him? Are they learning from their struggles? Will they humble themselves? Will they trust in him? Or will they forge ahead in their own ability in their own way? Spurgeon spoke very clearly on this when addressing pride in believers. He said, if pride is harbored in your spirit, God will whip it out of you. They that go up in their own estimation must come down again by his discipline. Pride is a hopeless state. It's met with disappointment in the world and discipline from God. Third, pride presents as arrogance. What's pride look like? It looks like arrogance often. Proud people have an elevated view of themselves. Their world revolves around them. All you got to do is ask them. They'll tell you how incredible everything that they do is. They'll tell you how, they go how good they are at everything they've ever tried. Proverbs 27, verse 2 is lost on them. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. Proverbs 27, 2. They can't be bothered to wait on the acclaim of others. They're just ready to praise themselves. Proud and arrogant and that they're impressed and their own ability. Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, Paul says it like this, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I wonder, do you find yourself able to accomplish everything always better than other people? 
If they'd just let me do it, I'd fix it. I could do it better than them. I don't know what their struggle is. It's easy. Never done it before, but I could YouTube it. Do you feel as though if you had control, whatever it is would be better? The Bible would call you an arrogant fool. Some of us call you brother or sister. Listen to Paul's warning again. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I have a confession to make. Sometimes I look at some of your lives and I'm like, if they just listen to me, they'd be fine. If I say that to you, you should walk out on me. That's foolish. You don't need me. You need Christ. Be careful, friend. Arrogant people live a life that in practicality doesn't need God. They live without him. Psalm 10, verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Psalm 10, 4, I know that's about unbelievers and we're trying to talk to believers, but don't we live practically often as if that's the case? When did you need God yesterday? What could you not have done without him? Why don't we need God in the mundane just like we need him in the massive? And then when we need him in the massive, it's only because we've exhausted all of our other options. What a pride that our self-willed lives betray. Arrogant believers have their own wisdom. They've matured it over years. They've developed it over years. They don't need prayer. They're doing just fine. Proverbs 21, verse 4, they have their own lamp. <laughs> what a thought. God, thanks for the Bible and for the wisdom, but I'm good. I read a few books. Spiritual arrogance is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, able to achieve our own sense of self-worth, and capable to find a purpose big enough to give this life meaning. Without God. I mean, rarely would we describe our lives like that. But would others describe our life like that? Often our life betrays what we need. And our life betrays we don't need God. We need more money. We need more time. We need more love. We need more fun. We need more approval. All of that is arrogance because what we need more of is always God. Maybe you're all about ministry. You're all about church. You're all about serving. And, and you just have been made the cat's meow by God. And the kingdom would crumble without your help. Remember what Paul's warning is to the church in Corinth. Their pride of their abilities was an issue. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, What do you have that you did not receive? I imagine pictures in my mind, and I think of Paul sitting there writing this, and I wonder what his face was like. If he used the term knucklehead, it would have been here. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? What do you have that you have not received? And what are you boasting about that God has given to you? Our arrogance is everywhere. The harder you look, the more I looked. Yuck. Maybe you're spit polished, squeaky clean and shiny. You've been going to church since you were seven days old. 
Friend, man looks on the outward appearance, but God knows your heart. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Often for good churchgoers, our greatest arrogance is in our accomplishments of a godly life. Fourth, pride causes spiritually flippant and deceived believers. Psalm chapter 2, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. But we got pastors wearing jeans and t-shirts that say, Jesus is my homeboy. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. What arrogance as we casually and flippantly approach the God of the universe. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. People often don't care about their holiness as long as it's good enough in front of the lives of others, as long as they're not really challenged or as long as they kind of meet the group standard. Psalm 139, verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. That's for other people. Good enough. That's pride. Pride runs from introspection. Pride brings self-deception. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 30 to 32, he's describing the results of those who suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. And in this list is the idea of haughtiness, the haughty who, in Romans 1, 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. You see, pride steals truth. Pride destroys truth. Pride suppresses truth truth. Pride deceives. It always has, but it won't always in the future because one day every knee will bow to the truth of who Christ is. Consider the message of Obadiah. Maybe Obadiah is lost on you, but Obadiah is a fascinating story. Obadiah was a prophet. The people of Israel, right after Babylon came and conquered Jerusalem and scattered a bunch of people, and a lot of them were running around trying to save their life, and the Edomites were like, ha, We'll take some of them. And they came in, took pot shots at Jerusalem and, and the people of God. And God's word to the evil of the Edomites is simple. Obadiah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Spiritual pride says, I'm good. I'll be fine. My sin's not that big of a deal. God says, I'm coming for you. Spiritual pride blinds to the promises of God that he will bring you down. You've probably heard, humble yourself or God will humble you. Yes. Pride is often manifest in what seems like the opposite of pride. How about self-pity? Some of you are like, this is not for me. And then I say self-pity, and you're like, oh, that's definitely not for me. Pride loves self-pity. Haughty hearts and self-pity or self-loathing, they're the same thing. Two sides of the same coin, pride. Oh, I'm just not good enough. I can't do this. I can't do that. I'm sorry for this. I'm sorry for that. No, you're not sorry. You just want attention. You want to be worshipped. You want the worth that you think you have to be given to you by others, but there's only one worthy of work, worth worship. We can't focus on ourself. That's self-pity. Pride focuses on self. Arrogance focuses on self. 
pride and arrogance focus on self. Self pity is a focus on what? Self. Hey, everybody, I'm always sorry and I'm always wrong, so let's all focus on me. That's self pity. You don't, you can't do that. And be humble. The gospel tells you, yeah, you're right, you are a problem, and you do have insufficiencies. But the gospel tells you where to find your help. And it's not in others and their pity, it's in Christ. Focus on Christ, trust God, believe the gospel, get over yourself, Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ. And self-pity says, but my debit card's not working. I don't have any riches. Pride focuses on self, self-pity it's pride. Fifth, pride yields thanklessness. Thanklessness to God and thanklessness to people. Our lives should be thank-filled. We were hell-bound, and God gave us what we needed to have us with him forever, eternity, and full of love and joy. And we're thankless? Psalm 50, verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. God wants thanksgiving. Why? Because he has done everything worthy of our thanks. Seventh pride postures itself as superior in everything, but in two main things. First pride postures itself in superior in doctrine. This is one of those yikes moments for me. I love doctrine. But we have to remember good, not good doctrine brings what? Humility and not pride. Choosing a side in a doctrinal debate, that brings pride. Loving God, knowing him through doctrine, brings humility. If your pride gets ruffled when you talk doctrine, tap the brakes. You have bad doctrine. You're not paying attention to what you're studying. Having good doctrine doesn't produce pride. Sin produces pride. I like George Whitfield's wisdom from a few hundred years ago. He says to help prevent spiritual pride, let us remember that we did not choose Christ, but we were chosen by him. We have nothing but what has been given to us. The free grace of God has alone made the difference between us and others. And if God was to leave us to to the deceitfulness of our own hearts for even a moment, we would become weak and wicked like other men. We should further consider that being proud of grace is the quickest way to to diminish it. Of all camps of theology, how can it be that those who understand and proclaim the grace of God in salvation are proud? What a living oxymoron I am. How can I say that God has saved me all by his grace from his work, apart from me, and be proud? If your doctrine produces pride and not love for others and thankfulness to God, repent. There's also a posture of moral superiority and pride. I don't do certain things or I haven't done certain things. Therefore, I'm superior to those who are doing or have done certain things. Maybe you were a virgin when you got married and you feel superior to those who fell into adultery. Maybe you kicked the habit of smoking and you feel superior to those who still fight it or you've conquered porn or, or whatever. Maybe you drink raw milk from RBH negative cows and you feel the moral superiority of taking care of your body or maybe use essential oils or I don't know. Maybe you attend Grace Life, host a grace group. You're always at Wednesday nights. You're the first person to show up on Sunday nights and you know you're a better Christian than others. Jesus told a parable about this kind of a person. When we start to compare our righteousness to the righteousness of others, 
You can find it in Luke chapter 18. Go ahead and turn there. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know the story. Luke 18, I'll begin in verse 10 and catch you up. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes all they get, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's the posture of moral superiority. But look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing afar off, not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is not moral superiority and pride. That is humility. And that's not only humility, but that's salvation. But do you know who Jesus told this story to? Look up at verse 9. It wasn't to tax collectors and harlots to encourage them in their pursuit of God in a lowly state. It was to the pompous, self-righteous, proud, arrogant, religious people to shake them into reality. Those who thought they were good with God and treated others with a contempt, Jesus is like, hold up, buddy. Are others, I wonder, unable to meet your standards? Are others beneath your godliness? Could it be that there are people in your life, brothers and sisters in this church, brothers and sisters in Christ that are good with Jesus but not good enough for you? What in the silly sauce? Jesus has accepted them because by grace through faith he saved them, but you're like, I don't know. Pen of your pride. Eighth, pride causes independence from the body and disunity in the body. We don't often view these together. The more I study them, they're the same thing. Independence from the body, not needing the body. It's just a non-confrontational way of being disunified. It's like the chicken way out. If you don't need church, you're proud. Because God saved you to need church. God saved you to need the body. God saved you to be a part of the body. And in your arrogant, immature twit of a soul, you say, I don't need these people. That's pride. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, an amazing reminder of the results of salvation, uh, what, what God has done and how it ends up helping us. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling of salvation. And then what? Verse 2, with all humility and with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You say, yeah, but I'm good. I don't really need other Christians. That pride of independence is no different than the pride that stirs disunity within the body because it's keeping the body separated. That pride is an assault on what God has created in order to achieve a focus on who? You and your ability to do what you want to do, how you want to do it without the help of anybody else. Ephesians 5.21, God commands us to, to make the regular practice of our life submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word there is fear. Submitting to one another out of fear of Christ. You so, I got preferences for worship. I think we should sing more hymns, or I think we should turn up the volume, or I think we should spend more on local missions, or I think we should stop taking mission trips, or I think we should plant more churches, or I think we should, you know, have shorter sermons. And yeah, you got a point, but you know, friends, wisdom and preference can never cause disunity amongst humble, God-fearing believers. It can't. But when proud believers are involved, there's your disunity. 
Ninth, you need to know about pride that it always results in shame. Proverbs 11.2 makes this axiomatic promise. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, or then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. Pride is often contrasted with two things, set in opposition to two things. Pride is often the opposite of humility. It's the opposite of wisdom. And it's also almost always associated with our shame. Pride's like a set of virtual reality goggles. Have you ever done those? I haven't. I don't really want to because I would guess once I do, I'm going to like want a pair. But I've seen YouTube videos and they crack me up. People put them on and then, I don't know, they're playing a game and they like run into a wall. Like full speed. Like they forgot they were in an eight by eight bedroom and they just tag a wall with their head. I love it. It's so funny. That's pride. You think it's real. You think you are who you want to be. You're not. The rest of us are on the outside looking at you wearing your goggles. Whacking your head in the wall. Remember Paul tells us that though Jesus is the earthly example of perfect humility, he will not always be perfectly humble. He will be perfectly glorious. There will be a day where every knee will bow. There is no more humility and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The goggles will come off. You'll see yourself for who you are. You'll see him for who he is and he will either be your Lord and Savior or your Lord and Judge. But he is Lord. Number three, how does the Bible propose you deal with your pride? In essence, kill it, be saved from it. How? Well, first, pursue a right view of God. When God's the creator, when God's the standard of glory, when God defines what is good, when God is king over all, then you'll pursue humility. When God is puny, your pursuit of humility will be puny. When our view of God is vast and immeasurable and grand and amazing, humility will begin to come more natural and we'll be passionately pursuing it Second, understand man. You need a right view of man. Who's man? On our own, we're spiritually dead. We're needy and dependent on God for salvation. We're saved by grace alone, satisfied in God alone, secured in God alone. When we know God and we know ourselves, how can we be proud? I love how John Flavel said it, that they that know God will be humble and they that know themselves cannot be proud. When we know that all have sinned and we are all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, Romans 3, 23 to 5. When we know that there is a God that died for us while we were dead, while we were enemies, how can we be proud? How can anyone be proud when you kneel in your soul beside the cross? See, third, if you want to fight pride, preach the gospel to yourself. You were dead, but God lived for him by grace through faith in him. And fourth, if you want to fight pride, worship God. You can't worship God in pride. Pride says, I'm worthy. Worship says, he's worthy. Pick one. You cannot do both. If you're proud, you're not worshiping him. Fifth, live for him like him. When you worship him and you love him for who he is and you saturate your mind with his character and grace, what will you do? You'll do whatever he desires. And what does he desire of you? To look like him. When you live for him and not yourself, you'll find pride evaporate. 
You want to fight pride? Then get off the throne. Jesus' throne. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Get out of there. It's his. Live as he requires. Do as he commands. Live like Jesus. Look like Jesus. Pursue sanctification. Pride kills sanctification. It can make you look good, but it's not real sanctification. Humility brings what you need in Christ. Pride keeps what you need from Christ. Live for him, like him. Fourth, eh, skip that one. Fifth, how do we pursue godly growth in our pride? Maybe a helpful question would be, how does the Bible say a humble person lives? Well, you saw it, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 to 14. We studied it in not so distant past. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Paul goes on to command us to bear with each other, forgive each other, have Christ as the standard, live together in harmony. Romans chapter 12, verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The Bible presents humility as a group project. Do you ever have to do those group projects? I loved them because I loved other people helping me. You know, group projects, amazing. Humility is a group project. You can do it on your own. Pride, I got this. Humility, help me. Humility is under God for others. Humble people express their humility in their love for other people. Pride and love can't go together. Love doesn't boast, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Humility and love cannot be separate and be true. You can't just be a humble person without loving, and you can't be a loving person without being humble. If you're humble, you will love other people because of what God has done for you. And lastly, land the plane here. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We should all take pride in something. All pride is not bad pride. There's one pride that's a good pride. It's not a pride in your job title or your paycheck or your house or your number of kids or your attendance at church. We should be proud, but not of ourselves. We should be very proud of the Lord. Knowing who we were, weak and needy, desperate sinners, God saved us. He saved us from ourselves. He saved us from the wrath that we had earned. Our righteous pride is in the majesty of God's grace and the wonder of his salvation and the glory of his mercy. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, find joy in being proud of what God has done for you. But that encompasses who you were. That's the black, ugly backdrop that the beautiful diamond of salvation is set upon. Boast in the work of God. May we do that forever. Let's pray. Father, help us to see our pride and to run from it to run to your grace and find your grace, train us in righteousness, to find your grace sufficient for who we were to become who you demand that we be. Help us to live together in harmony, to help one another, to seek truth, to not be afraid of our sins because our Savior has conquered them, but to live in righteous obedience to him, always pursuing his image always pursuing sanctification to look like him, boasting in your work and your work alone. Help us. We need it. You deserve it. So we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.